We're going to start a new series today called Entrapment. <laughs> Entrapment. And so I'm going to start off with a, a scripture from Paul out of a famous passage uh, that many of you guys are probably familiar with. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know that the devil, the enemy, has some plans for you, right? We know that God has good plans, right? But the enemy has some plans, some schemes of the devil. And Paul's warning us to, to be aware of these schemes. He, he's trying to set up traps for us to fall. He's trying to set up traps in our thinking. How many of you guys have ever discovered one of those traps before, right? He's trying to set up traps to get us off in wrong theology, uh, uh, you know, about the way we think about God or the way we think about, um, you know, how things work. He's trying to get us into traps of offenses, He's trying to get us into traps of uh, lenses, wrong lenses through which we see life or we see relationships. And he's, a lot of times he's quite successful at it. And so he's trying to trap us in sin and all these different things. And so entrapment is really this scheme of the devil to try to get us to take a detour in following Jesus. How many of you guys have ever found yourself in a detour, right? This is a trap of the enemy to try to get us on a detour from following Jesus. And so for the next three weeks, at least, we're going to be anchored in John chapter 21. And we're going to look at the life of Peter and Three traps that the enemy tried to get Peter to fall into. He got him to fall into them, but ultimately Peter overcame them, which is good news, which means we can also overcome. And so if you want to, if you got a Bible or phone or whatever, you can follow along on the screen, John chapter 21 and verse 18. Let me just set up just the story just a little bit. You know, we know that Jesus went to the cross. He died. He resurrected. Uh, the disciples are kind of you know, disoriented, and Peter and some of the guys go back to fishing. Jesus encounters them and rest ultimately restores Peter three times. You know, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep for the three times that Peter had denied him. And then we get to this moment in verse 18. It says, truly, truly, this is Jesus says, truly, 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 he's talking to Peter. He says, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And we don't have to wonder what he's talking about because he tells Peter exactly what he was talking about. And he says, it, it, the scripture confirms this. It says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And so we know that at least according to this scripture here and then also by tr Christian uh, tradition that Peter was crucified but he was crucified upside down as a martyr because he said to those who were going to crucify him that he did not wish to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. He didn't feel worthy of it, so he asked them to crucify him upside down. Now, Jesus tells him of his death, which, as we'll see later on this series, is actually good news for Peter. And you say, why is that good news? Because, well, at one point, Peter had denied Jesus. And so the fact that Jesus prophesied that he's going to become a martyr was actually, in fact, good news that he was going to carry it out to the end. And so after Jesus says all of this, he, he says, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Can we all just say that? Say, follow me. 
That's, by the way, the command of Jesus to every single disciple throughout all the ages has been that same command, follow me. And we're going to be looking at that today, just that simple idea of follow Jesus. And so Jesus says all this, predicts his death, restores him, says, follow me. And then watch what Peter does in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? We have enough information here to know that who he's talking about is the apostle John. And so, so you know, Jesus says all this to Peter. Peter soaks it all in, but Peter's reaction is to look at John and say this. He says, but what about this man? But what about this guy? And, and Jesus said to him, he said, if it is my will to, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so what we're going to be looking at today, if you just kind of sum up this story, Jesus talking to Peter, Peter says, what about him? Jesus says, none of your business. <laughs> you follow me. So we're going to talk about this trap of comparison today. This is a trap that happens all throughout Scripture, but it happened right here in a very important moment in Peter's life. Have you guys remember a couple weeks ago I talked about the anointing? The anointing is simply the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do what God has called you to do. And with every anointing comes attached to it an assignment by God. And sometimes that assignment goes from season to season. You might, you know, change assignments, but the anointing is always attached to assignment because the anointing is not there for you to feel something. The anointing is there for you to do something, right? And so you have an anointing, but you have an assignment attached to it. Peter had an anointing, but he had an assignment attached to it. And Peter's assignment was not the same thing as John's assignment. John had a different assignment than Peter. And your assignment, how do you guys know that every single one of us have an assignment, right? Now, let's just think about some of the assignments that we might have that you might not even realize it is an assignment by God right now. For some of us, it could be as simple as being prepared to share the gospel as the word came today with our neighbor. Like, that could be your assignment right now, that you're in a preparation to share the gospel, to be ready. For some of us, it, it could be your assignment is homeschooling your children right now. That's one of your assignments. For some of you, it's building a business that God's called you to build. For some of you, it's stepping out into whatever it is. How do you guys know you have an assignment, right? You have maybe many assignments right now. But here's what I want you to understand. Your assignment is so important to God that God will correct you. If you to, he will correct you to keep you on assignment. Your assignment is so important to God that God will allow you to have discomfort when you're outside of it. That God will allow you to experience the pain of it and won't protect you from all of the pain of walking outside of the assignment of God. Because your assignment is important. It's not because God doesn't love you. God does love you. And he loves you so much to keep you on assignment. The assignment that he created you for. And here's, let me give you some thoughts about comparison. Comparison distracts you from your assignment. Whenever we get into comparison, God, God has an assignment and anointing attached to it, and an assignment attached to the anointing. It's simply a particular task in season. It could be many tasks in a particular season. And how many of you guys know, sometimes these assignments are wonderful, aren't they? I've had some wonderful assignments by God, from God. But how many of you guys have ever been in an assignment that's not so wonderful? Anybody ever been there before? Okay, a couple people have been there too. 
Sometimes, have you guys ever been in this, uh, sometimes your assignment is just a seemingly unending series of mundane obediences. And some of you guys might be in that assignment right now. We're in a series of seemingly mundane, insignificant obediences. And yet, that is your assignment in life right now. And, and there's a temptation because of comparison to look at others who maybe don't seem to be in a, in a series of mundane obediences to try to jump out of the series of obediences to get into something a little more interesting, right? I want you to think about, if we go all the way back to the Old Testament, the people of Israel. And how many of you guys know that Israel, as they were coming out of Egypt, they were prisoners, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. As they were coming out, they had an identity. They were promised land takers. They were promised land possessors. But even before they stepped in the land, their identity was a promised land person, right? But they had a path that had to get them into the promised land. They had a path, and that path was a series of assignments. See, God has called you to some things right now, and that is your identity even before you get there. But the path to get there is a series of assignments to get there. And you can't detour your way, you can't fast track your way, you can't shortcut your way in order to get there faster. There's a series and a path, that, a series of assignments God has called you to do. And sometimes it seems ridiculous. So they're, they're promised land takers, but the first thing they have to come across is the walls of Jericho, right? It's the first city that they have to take. And so God gives them an assignment in Joshua chapter 6, verse 3. He says, Here's how it's going to happen. You're going to march around the city, all the men of war going around the city, and that's shall you do for six days. So let me tell you, I'm not going to read all the scriptures, but here's what happened. He tells them, for six days, what's going to happen is you're going to march around the city, and there are going to be seven priests who are going to blow seven trumpets continually as you're marching around. And all the rest of you can't say a word the whole time. You're going to march around the city, seven trumpets blowing the whole time. You're going to march around at once, go home, that's your day. You're going to wait until the next day. You're going to get up, the seven guys with the seven trumpets, they're going to blow continually. You're going to walk around, you can't say anything. You go home, that's day two. You do this, how many of you guys know after you get to probably five, day five or six, you're like, I want to tell these trumpet guys to be quiet, but I can't even say anything, right? And so you're, you're going through this process. That's the process they were going through of day after day. And some of us are in that day after day right now. And you're going through, and you're hearing the trumpets. You can't say a word. This is your assignment. And you want to see the walls fall down, but you're in this assignment from God. You, you're thinking, how can this work? And, and so I want to just encourage you, don't despise the march around the walls right now. Don't despise these days of marching around the walls because don't despise the assignment that currently seems like it's not going to get you the results that you want to have. Don't despise that. Why? Because it's in the march around the walls that is actually forming you into the type of person that you need to be when the walls are down. See, there, there's something about the march around the walls that God needs to see. Are you going to be obedient in the little things? Are you going to be obedient for the long haul? 
Because that's what it takes for a promised land type person. That's what it's needed for a person who, when the walls are down, God needs somebody who's going to be able to say yes consistently. And so some of us, man, we, we are despising the march around the walls, and yet the march around the walls is the very thing that's forming us into the type of people that we need to be when the walls are down. And, and so don't despise the march around the walls. And so I, I would say it this way. Don't focus on what you are doing so much as what you are becoming because it's in who you're becoming that will inform your future doing. It's in your becoming that will unlock your future doing. See, so many of us want to just get to the do instead of the be. But it's, God is always about forming who you need to be in order to do what you need to do. That's good right there. We, if you came for anything, that was it, right? But watch this. Day seven comes. Day seven in verse 15 says, On the seventh day they rose early. And the dawn of day, and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. So this day, they had to march around the city. Only it wasn't one time, they marched around seven times. And this was going to be different. It was, the, it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, don't be quiet anymore, but now it's time to shout. And shout, for the Lord has given you the city. What I want you to see is that on the seventh day, their assignment shifted. And the point is this. If we aren't sensitive to the assignments that God gives us in our life, then we may miss when the assignments shift in our life. And we will end up just being people who go through the motions instead of people who are active followers. When Jesus said, follow me, what did he mean? He meant, I'm going someplace, watch. That means in real time. That means walk with me. That means be attuned to me. That means don't get your own plan because if you get your own plan, you may find out you're over here and I'm over here. See, the follow me means that there are assignments I have to keep in touch with and keep in tune with. And your assignment is important. Don't waste your assignment. If you're marching around the walls right now, don't waste that. Don't despise that. You know, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now I want you to think about how sobering this scripture is, that evidently there's an implication here that it's possible that you can be handed this wonderful gift of God's grace. Yeah, I mean, you guys know grace is undeserved favor, right? We can't earn it, we can't buy it, we can't borrow it, we can't do, do, barter for it, we can't do anything for it. It's undeserved favor. But grace is also the empowerment of God to overcome sin, the empowerment of God attached with the anointing to do what God has called us to do. And so the implication is, is that God could give you an empowerment for an assignment that you waste because you try to do something else, right? So don't waste the grace of God in your life. And the reason why this is so important and our assignment is so important is because God made us Unique. And to kind of illustrate this, I've got to take you to my office. There's something in my office that helps us see this. So let's take a look. All right, in the corner of my office back here sits a painting that is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. 
It's uh, by Rembrandt. It was given to me by a good friend, and uh, I love this painting, but I hate to disappoint everybody. I don't have the original painting. <laughs> the original was painted in the 1600s at some point. It's, you know, it, I don't have the original. I have a reprint. The original's worth, you know, got to be worth millions and millions of dollars, right? But I do have a, re a reprint, and the reprint's valuable to me, but it's not valued probably at that much money at all. And this is kind of a picture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a bunch of reprints. And I think that's what some of us end up trying to live our life like. We see other people's lives and then we just try to become a reprint of somebody else's life. And it, you know, it may be nice, it may be nice to look at, but it's, it's totally devaluing what God wants to do. The kingdom of God is supposed to be billions of actual original works of art. Uh, sometimes I get fascinated by these, you know, personality tests or, you know, uh, one of them in particular is a strength finders test. Some of you guys may have taken this test in business or, you know, your business or whatever it is, but basically it's this thing that's been developed over years where they asked 2000 something questions. I think it was to come up with 34 different strengths that people might have. And you can go and you can take a test and you can figure out, you know, which strength that you have and in which order. And some of them are like, you know, achiever or strategic or learner. And you can take a test and figure out some of your strengths. And the idea is rather than focusing on your weaknesses, what if you focused on your strengths? And so you can take a test and you can look at your top five in order. Now, what I find fascinating about this, and this is just simply statistics, but what I find fascinating is if you, what do you think it would take? How many people do you think you would have to meet to find another person on the planet with your same five, your same top five, if you were to take the test, in your order? In fact, you would have to meet 33 million people before you would come across another person with your same top five strengths in that order. You know, with 7 billion people on the planet or whatever, that's, you know, roughly about 212 people who only, only 212 other people who have the same top five in your same order. Now, if you were to take that to your top six strengths of that test, well, you're probably the only person on the planet uh, who even has those top six in that top, top in that order because of how it, the improbabilities of it work. Now, now let's just take it back to like this region. Now, just imagine there's probably nobody in this whole area, the Kansas City area, who have your same top five in your same top order. It, think about our church. There's probably nobody in our church, if you were to take the test and if all of us were to take the test that had the same top five in the same order that you do. So what happens if you're missing or if you just try to become a reprint, something is missing. See, the reprint, it cheapens the value. And so I have a reprint and its value is not near as valuable as its original. So the kingdom of God is not a bunch of, it's not a billion reprints, it's a billion works of art that God wants to put on display. The question is, are we cheapening the value of what God wants to do in our life? And what God wants to do in your life is an original, by the way. It is an original. And so it leads us to this second thought about comparison. See, once we realize that comparison distracts us from our assignment, then possibly we might need to deal with the second issue. 
Comparison then reveals areas in need of repentance. So comparison is really three things, and it's kind of how I boiled it down. Comparison, number one, it's I want to do what they do. And it reveals this area, a need of repentance called jealousy. Because spiritually speaking, have you guys ever felt like maybe if everybody was on a spiritual vacation, it seems like everyone else is on the Disney cruise and you're camping with a bologna sandwich, right? <laughs> it's like, I wish I could get to do what they do, you know? I want to go and, and uh, be used by God how they're used by God. I want to be able to do in business what they get to do. I want to be able to go where they get to go, right? And all that does is it reveals in our heart jealousy that needs to be repented of in our heart. Another thing that comparison is, it's not just I want to do what they do, it's also I want to have what they have. And it reveals in our heart the idea of idolatry, because anytime we begin to elevate something else that we don't have, that we do, it doesn't seem like we can get, it now has a temptation to become an idol in our life. We make an idol out of other things that other people have. Now, here's what I started asking myself a long time ago, and it's really revealing, and I want to just let you guys sit with it for a second. I want you to think, how many of you guys do have some things that you want right now that you don't have? All of us have them, okay? So it's talking to everybody, you know? We all have these things. Here's the question. How much of what you currently want is only because you saw someone else have it first. Or maybe you saw it on an advertisement. You didn't even know you would want that. But because you saw someone else have this house, someone else have that type of car, someone else have that type of experience, someone else have that type of whatever, now it's created in you a desire that you did not even know that you had before that you hadn't had before. Uh, and you would have been totally happy had you not been exposed to that, right? So what I'll do sometimes as a mental exercise is I'll just pretend like I hadn't seen it, and I'll look around at what I currently have and ask, would I actually be happy with this had I not known about that? And the answer is always yes. Always. Isn't that revealing then? I mean, shouldn't that tell us something about, here's what it tells me, that when I get the next thing, there's always going to be something. And there's never an end, right? Once you realize there's never an end, it's time to put some things to an end, right? How much of what, what we want and what we you know, see in other people is just because of what we've seen them have and now we want it. Have you guys watched old shows every now and then? We started watching the Dick Van Dyke Show. Have you guys remember the Dick Van Dyke Show? There's some really funny stuff on that thing, you know? Well, we were watching this episode recently and, and Dick and Laura are, you know, they're kind of back and forth about something and the thing they're back and forth on is because Laura wants to plan this huge birthday party for their kid that's going to cost a hundred dollars, right? And back then, I don't know the, the translation of money, but it must have been a lot, right? It was a lot of money, right? And so this the whole episode's hilarious, but it's basically this struggle because they don't want to feel bad as parents for not providing something for their kids that everyone else is getting. And it's only because everyone else has got it that's produced, produced the pressure on them to produce it for their kids, 
How much of what we're trying to give to our kids is only because other people are giving it to their kids? Boy, I'm, I'm preaching good right now, right? <laughs> shouldn't, shouldn't this free somebody up a little bit? Shouldn't this free us up? And sometimes what comparison is, it's just living through other people. Now, let's go even deeper. How much of what we're doing with our kids is trying to live vicariously through our kids and to give them what we couldn't have? It's a dangerous thing to try to live through our kids. Because what happens is we end up trying to steer their destiny instead of let them be led by Jesus. You know, many of you guys know my son is the youth director at the church here. And I was a youth pastor, you know, many, many years ago. And so as he was growing up, I, I gave him exposure, but I, I almost kept, tried to keep him away from it. Because I didn't want me to influence him and his desires. In fact, I kept him away from it, and, and he just kept coming back to it. <laughs> it was like God put this desire in his heart that was something that was totally different because he's a unique person, and yet God put this call on his life. In fact, many of you guys don't know, but he applied for the job three times, and we denied him three times. But God kept placing this desire in his heart and eventually confirmed it with everybody that this is right. Why? Because I didn't want to try to live through him. I wanted God to allow him to be able to be developed into who he was supposed to be, right? So comparison is I want to do what they do. I want to have what they have. But it's also this third thing that needs to be repented of, which is I want to be who they are, which reveals something called insecurity, you say, insecurity is something to be repented of? Absolutely. Insecurity is simply misplaced security. We've placed our security somewhere else other than God. We started this church, I was 28 years old. 28 years old when we started the church. And I, let me just tell you, honestly, I thought I was so far behind. I thought, 28, man, I'm really old to be starting a church. And it's funny now, it's funny. But back then, it was absolutely true to me. I mean, I, now I realize how laughable that is. Like, why would you do that? I would never encourage anybody to do that. But yet God's plan was for that. But I'm telling you, I felt so far behind. Why did I feel behind? I felt behind because the pastor that I grew up in, the church that I grew up in, he started the church when he was in his late teenage years. And by the time he was my age at 28, when we started, he, the church was like in the thousands. And so I thought, I'm starting at 28. I'm so far behind. So listen, if you have this feeling of I'm left out or I'm so far behind, you can be sure it's comparison driving it. Why? Because the only reason you'd even know that is through comparison. And so this I want to be who they are, we've all struggled with that. Now, here's what I want you to understand. It's the mercy, it's actually the mercy of God that reveals these areas that we need to repent of. It's God's mercy to us. It's the mercy of God to reveal these things, but it's our responsibility to act on these things. Because what God reveals, we want to be not just hearers of the word, we want to be doers of the word, and we want to repent. So how can we repent? How can we walk differently in this area, this trap of comparison? 
Well, let me give you this last thought on comparison. I believe it's really this simple. Comparison is an opportunity to return our trust to Jesus. It's that simple. It's just an opportunity to return our trust to Jesus. Now, here's what some of us might think. Okay, if comparison is, oh, I want to do what they do. I want to have what they have. I want to be who they are. Then it must be, the solution must be to say, I do enough. I need to rest in that. The solution must be to say, I have enough. I need to rest in that. The solution must be that I am enough. I need to rest in that. And yet that's not the solution. The solution is not I do enough, I have enough, I am enough. The solution is he's enough. Because there's always going to be a day when you don't do enough, you don't have enough, you aren't enough. But he's always enough, right? And so if we can return our trust to Jesus to say he is enough. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 this is good news. We know that Peter wrote the scriptures. See, we know he moved beyond the point of John 21 to go all the way to where he's, he's given us scripture. He says, by his divine power. See, Peter got it here at the end. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We received all of this by coming to know him. How do you get everything you need for a godly life? Him. That's it. Jesus. Jesus is enough. It says that uh, by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Now, I've been studying a lot about these people who we know of in history, Christian history, called the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Some of you guys have ever heard of them before. So some of you guys have. All right. Let me give you just a little brief summary of what happened um, in the early days of Christianity, of course, we know like Peter and the apostles and the book of Acts, we see a lot of that story. But as time went through the first century or two, Christians were really under persecution. They were martyred a lot. They were not popular. Uh, but eventually what happened is over the next two or three hundred years, uh, there became a, sep a separation, but also an acceptance so that by the time of Constantine in the 300s, that there was actually probably about five to six million believers at that time. And it was to the point where it was kind of becoming acceptable to be a follower of Jesus, so much so that it became integrated into and welcomed into the government to be a Christian and to stand on that platform a little bit. And so what happened throughout those centuries and around that time, as some could prophetically see it coming and some were living it out and some later on would be experiencing it, that there was such a mixture between Christianity and politics. There was such a mixture between Christianity and culture that some people started to worry that you wouldn't be able to see the difference between the two after a while. And I'm not talking about 2022, even though I'm talking about 2022. But these guys, they, they became desert fathers because they went and they fled to the deserts of Egypt and Syria and Palestine. Not to run away from culture, but simply because they said, I have to find God again. I have to find God untainted by the mixture. 
And so they went out to the deserts, into the solitude, just to clear their minds. And some of them went for, century, for, for decades, some of them, and eventually communities came. And so just give you a quick history before I go on. Here's a quick video. Just kind of take us into what the desert and father, fathers and mothers were all about. Let's watch. The most famous of the desert monks was Anthony. In about 270 AD, at the age of 20, he sold all of his possessions, gave his money to the poor, and retired to a solitary cave to lead a life of prayer and meditation. Anthony's reputation encouraged others to do the same thing, and many caves were inhabited near him. Anthony never organized his followers into a community, but instead, they all practiced the monastic lives of hermit monks. By the time he died in about 356 AD, thousands of monks had been drawn to the Egyptian desert following Anthony's example. His biographer wrote, the desert had become a city. History reveals that Anthony and the Desert Fathers went on to have a major influence on the development of Christianity. In fact, all of Christian monasticism stems from the Egyptian example in some way. Basil the Great, Archbishop of Cappadocia, was the great organizer of the monastic movement in Asia Minor. He visited Egypt around 357 AD and learned from the Desert Fathers. His monastic style is followed by the Eastern Orthodox churches. Jerome came to Egypt in the late 4th century. He was greatly impacted by the desert monks and left details of his experiences in his letters. As a result, Jerome lived in a hermit's cave in Bethlehem for nearly two decades while translating the Bible into Latin. And Benedict, the founder of what would be known as the Benedictine Order within the Western Church of the 6th century, also based his monastic community on the Egyptian model. Benedict just added work to his idea of spiritual isolation. By the end of the 6th century, there were hundreds of monasteries and thousands of caves scattered throughout the Egyptian desert. A great number of these monasteries are still used today. And so they went out into the deserts. They went out to find God, to be able to hear clearly. People began to come out to them for wisdom. And it said, some people say that these desert fathers or desert monks, you could call them, actually spoke back into Christianity and re-evangelized Christianity. Because they could speak from a position of being untainted by the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all become monks, okay? I'm not suggesting that at all. In fact, that obviously they went to extremes. Obviously, you could take this in a wrong direction. Obviously, you could go to a place that it would not be healthy. But what they were demonstrating is this very powerful thought, this very powerful idea. They were demonstrating this idea that Jesus is all that I need. I don't need the trappings of the world. I don't need all of these things. I don't need all these things to be happy or to, to do. They were doing something very radical. And so the question is, we're not supposed to be monks and called to be monks, but are there areas of our life that maybe we need to take some radical steps in? That maybe we've been going down a wrong path and we need to pull back from? 
Are there seasons in our life where maybe we're just doing things or going through the motions because we have or because other people are, and we need to, to take some radical steps in our life? Can we say with conviction that Jesus is all that I need? Let me ask that again. Can you say with conviction, Jesus, you are all that I need? It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus and. It's not Jesus if. Jesus is all that I need. And if you can't say that, the question is, how do you get back to that place where you can say that Jesus is my source? He's all that I, I need. Because the, the, real, the reality is this, that this is the true call of being a disciple. It was simply follow me. Jesus came up to the disciples. He said, follow me. It wasn't follow me and you'll get. It wasn't follow me and. It wasn't follow me plus. It was follow me. And if all you do is follow Jesus and that's all you get, you have enough. In fact, Scripture tells us we have more than enough. The question is, can we say that with conviction in our heart? And if we can't say that with conviction in our heart, may I suggest we've drifted somewhere? May I suggest that through comparison, we've, you know, we've plugged into a wrong source, Here's a question, good question to ask yourself. Whatever the things that you desire right now, the question is this, can I delight without this? Can I joy without this? And if I can't, my source is not God. If I can't delight without this, my source has become this thing, this idea, this achievement, but it certainly isn't God. Now, Paul goes to an extreme in his writing sometimes. We might think it's an extreme. I think you guys know Paul's all about, you know, the Bible's all about family. God's about a family. He's a father with a family. God's all about marriage. But, but watch what Paul says that's so counter our society right now and counter just even, especially church world and Christianity a lot of times. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And he, he goes on, he says, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. He said, if he's going to be anxious about something, it's going to be about God, about how to please God. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. Paul's not against marriage. He talks highly about marriage in other passages. The Bible's not against marriage. The Bible's pro-marriage, all of that. But he's simply making a point here. He's saying that if you are single... You have an opportunity. And he says, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. And he says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you. He's saying, I'm not saying marriage is bad. Marriage is a good thing. But he's simply pointing out this opportunity. He's saying, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, Paul presents singleness not as a liability, but as an opportunity. He says, and it's all about this idea of getting back to this singular thought that Jesus is all that I need. Jesus is my source. He says, it's not a liability, it's actually an opportunity, but most single people I know don't treat it that way. Most most church people I know don't treat it that way. And again, it's not, it's not that it's a bad thing to be married. 
like that's a good, healthy desire. It's not a bad thing at all. But he's saying, don't miss your opportunity. Don't miss your opportunity. Paul was single. Jesus was single. What opportunities may we be missing in our life by comparison to other people? By being consumed with our problems or our singleness or our issues or our lack of whatever or our lack of place or position rather than in that place. May we find an opportunity to put our focus on God. That's what Paul's saying here. He's, he's not saying that, he, he's saying that singleness, as an example, he's not saying it's less than, it's actually preferred. He's not saying it's secondary, it's, it's actually the, the better thing in his analogy here. Because if the win is to follow after Jesus, here's an opportunity to do it well, right? And that's not popular. But the point is simply, the aim of all of us should be that Jesus is my source, that Jesus is all that I need. And if you, all you have is Jesus, you truly have enough. So maybe there's a way, and I'll just give us a couple ideas here at the end. Maybe there's a way that instead of falling into the trap of comparison, maybe there's a way we can trap the enemy in his own trap. And so if you want to do this, let me just give you two quick ideas uh, and the worship team can come back up as we do this. But the first idea is this. What if, this idea of comparison, what if we flip the script? What if instead of looking constantly at other people's platform or other people's stuff or other people's brand or other people's what they have and longing to have it, what if we flip the script and instead of building our brand or platforming ourselves, what if we reverse branded and what if we lifted other people up? What if we were to celebrate instead of covet? What if we were to platform other people? What if we were to reverse brand instead of building ours? What if we re reversed it and we started building others? Might that flip the script a little bit on the enemy and surprise him a bit? That we weren't so concerned with our reputation, but we were only concerned with his? You know, when I went on sabbatical in 2018, I was a little nervous that everything would be kind of held together as I was gone, because I was gonna be gone for six weeks. And I came back and I found out that the church actually grew while I was gone. And I was actually, in, I was happy about that, but can I just be honest, there was a little bit of a moment there where I was like, am I actually needed here, you know? And, but it was this idea that in the end, it's all about Jesus being lifted up, right? It's not about my reputation. It's not about my brand. It's not about my platform. But what if we saw Jesus lifted up? One of the desert fathers, there's a story. Let me just tell you this story here. It's a story of the desert father, Abba or father Longinus. Longinus had a reputation and a gift for healing. And so people would come to him and get healed. Well, there was this lady in this neighboring town that uh, she heard, found out that she had breast cancer. And in that day, that'd be a death sentence, right? I mean, you, you didn't have all this access to medical stuff. And so her friends talked to her and said, oh, you gotta go see Abba Longinus because he, you could get healed. And she went to go off to go find him. And she comes across this guy working in the field and it's Abba Longinus, but she doesn't know it's him. 
And she goes up and she says, I'm looking for Abba Longinus. And he looks at her and says, oh, you don't wanna go after that guy. You don't wanna find that guy, he's an idiot. He's a charlatan, you don't wanna, you don't wanna find him. And she's like, oh, okay. And he's like, well, why do you wanna even find him in the first place? And she tells him the whole story and he says, come over here. She comes over and he prays over her. He makes the sign of the cross over. He says, now go back home. She goes back home, she's healed. She goes back and tells her family and they're like, that was Abelangenus, you met him. The point is this, he was so not into building his brand. He was so not into being about his reputation. He was so not into that, that he was willing to just let Jesus have the glory, right? And the second thing is this, if you want to kind of trap the devil in his own trap, let me tell you something I've been doing for quite some time, but especially this, this week, a lot, just being hypersensitive to this issue. And I found this come up over and over and over again. Anytime I've been tempted with comparison, I realize that I could do something. And what I do is I stop and I say, God, in this moment, I offer you this beautiful gift that I have of my contentment. I can't tell you how many times I've offered God this beautiful gift of my contentment this week. And I wanna encourage you, every single one of us can do this. Whenever you offer God this, it's a beautiful gift that you can give the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the gift of your contentment. Say, God, I don't have to have more. God, I don't have to be something else. I just need you. And in you, I live and move and have my being. So John chapter 21, verse 21, back to the beginning, Peter asked Jesus, he says, what about him, Lord? And Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? So let me ask you, when you're looking about, well, what about them? What about me? Jesus, I want you to hear Jesus saying that to you. What is it to you? You just follow me. And if you will follow me, you get all that you need and more. You get everything that you need. And if, right now, if we could just stand up, we're getting ready to receive communion. Would you stand up with me? We're getting ready to come to the table. And at the table, there's something that's a powerful reminder. Tables in front, tables in back. The body is represented by the bread as we take that. It's a reminder that his body was broken for us, that he paid the price. The juice represents the blood that was spilled for us so that we might have access to follow him, so that we might have access that in we live, in him we live, move, and have our being, that everything we need is in him. And so right now, Galatians chapter six, verse 14 is our final scripture. Paul says this, he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been, listen to this, the world has been crucified to me. Like, I don't have to have the world if I have Jesus and I to the world. So that we can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in the flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right now, as we come to the table, we're gonna come and grab the elements during this song, take them back to our seat, have a moment with God. But I wanna just encourage you to take a moment to offer God the gift of your contentment as you receive. And say, God, in you, 
Jesus, it's in you that we find everything that we need. It's not Jesus plus, it's not Jesus and, it's not Jesus if, it's not Jesus when, but Jesus, you're my all in all. And if I have nothing else but Jesus, I have more than enough. If I have nothing else but Jesus, I truly have more than enough. And in you, I am content. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come and receive.